The following program was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. American citizens have the right to be provided work so that they can support their families decently and properly. Now is the time to fight, to fight for the best interests of our city, and we ask Public housing was finally recognized as a proper function of government. It's not done by speeches. The LaGuardia Archives at LaGuardia Community College of the City University of New York presents The Dreamer and the Doer, The Life and Work of Fiorello LaGuardia, with narrator Tony Lobianco. Fiorello, it was a year of great personal tragedy. Over the winter, he had learned that his wife, Taya, and his infant baby, Fioretta, had both developed tuberculosis. Fiorello tried desperately to save them. He moved his family from Greenwich Village to the Bronx, hoping that the higher altitude would have a beneficial effect. When this did not work, he moved again, first to Long Island, and then to Saranac Lake a resort area in upstate New York. But in May, tuberculosis claimed his tiny daughter. And before the year was out, his beloved Taya had died too. In his wife's wake, Fiorello sobbed uncontrollably. The loss of his daughter, and now Taya, had left him inconsolable. It would be a long time before he recovered. During the 1920s, Tuberculosis and other highly contagious diseases like diphtheria and influenza were deadly killers, claiming thousands of lives in New York each year, especially among the city's poor. These grim statistics, together with the tragic death of his wife and child, prompted LaGuardia to undertake a major program upon becoming mayor in 1934. A huge expansion of the city's public health services and its public hospital system in 1940, Fiorello confidently told New Yorkers, We are winning the war on tuberculosis. I have often predicted that the next generation will have no tuberculosis problem, that cases will be exceptional and rare if we take advantage of everything that is necessary to prevent that disease. Fiorello realized that a successful public health program was only one method of fighting disease. For many years, LaGuardia had been troubled by the city's slums, the grinding poverty he saw there, and the poor sanitation and overcrowding that gave rise to infectious diseases. Louis Yavna, a LaGuardia commissioner, recalls how Fiorello acted to improve conditions in the slums. Under LaGuardia, 
and this is one of his great accomplishments, he was the first mayor of New York, of any American city, to develop low-cost housing, public housing. By building public housing projects, as well as improving the city's public health services, Fiorello changed the lives of millions of New Yorkers. At the same time, he vastly expanded the role of municipal government in providing fundamental needs, a role that has remained basically unchanged. In 1935, LaGuardia opened the first of the new public housing projects that would be constructed during his administration. It was called, appropriately enough, First Houses, and it was located on the Lower East Side. First Houses was a gut renovation of dilapidated old tenements intended for low-income families. Wrecking crews demolished every third building to increase the amount of light and air flowing into the remaining structures, which were then completely rehabilitated. The effort to rid New York City of its slums had actually begun years earlier. LaGuardia acknowledged the debt he owed to muckraking journalist Jacob Rees, a man whose graphic portrayals of tenement life helped to initiate change. This is how Jacob Rees described one rundown building in his book, How the Other Half Lives. Cherry Street. Be a little careful, please. The hole is dark, and you might stumble over children pitching pennies back there. Here, where the hole turns and dives into utter darkness, is a step, and another, another, a flight of stairs. Close? Yes, what would you have? All the fresh air that ever enters these stairs comes from the hole door, that is forever slamming, and from the windows of dark bedrooms, that in turn receive it from the stairs. Their sole supply of the elements God meant to be free, but man deals out with such niggardly hand. That was a woman filling her pail by the hydrant you just bumped against. The sinks are in the hallway that all the tenants may have access, and all be poisoned alike by the summer stenches. Here's a door. Listen. That short hacking cough, that tiny helpless wail. What do they mean? The child is dying with measles, with half a chance it might have lived, but it had none. Measles, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and tuberculosis. Over the years, the city took measures to help the poor who were afflicted with these diseases. Dispensaries were set up offering free medical treatment, and baby health stations were established providing pure milk to tenement youngsters. In 1914, New York's health commissioner established the city's first district health center, which served 35,000 people on the Lower East Side. Historian John Duffy. They had a medical inspector who examined school children. They had uh, three nurses. Every family in the district was registered. They uh, located which children needed medical, dental work, or eye work, or whatever it was, and uh, it, was, it was, was quite successful. By 1917, there were five health centers in operation. But during the prosperity of the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, as the era was called, people wanted to forget about the problems of the poor. It was the Great Depression that finally began to focus attention on municipal health and housing plans. Suddenly there were great masses of poor people, people who had lost jobs and, and were unable to pay their rent. All around the city, landlords sent marshals to evict tenants. But when the marshals tried to throw them and their furniture out on the street, Crowds of angry protesters moved the furniture right back in again. In 1932, massive demonstrations broke out in the Bronx. It was known as the Great Rent Spike War. 
activists and strike leaders rallied the demonstrators. When times were good, the landlords didn't offer to share their profits with us. The landlords made enough money off us when we had it. Now that we haven't got it, the landlords must be satisfied with less. During this period, similar demonstrations broke out across the country, profoundly influencing the newly elected administration of President Franklin Roosevelt. Under FDR's New Deal, the government for the first time adopted a public housing program. Historian Peter Marcuse. The origin of the public housing program in New York City is directly attributable to the Depression and to the massive discontent that was unleashed by the Depression. There were so many people that were left unemployed, that were impoverished, that were very often left homeless by the Depression, that there was a major danger of protest and indeed of revolt in many cases. And that led those in power to adopt programs both for jobs and for housing that were designed to head off the kind of explosion that might otherwise have occurred. Roosevelt included funds for public housing construction as part of the new Public Works Administration. Mayor LaGuardia explained the purpose of this legislation in a 1939 speech. The President of the United States had two things in mind when he asked Congress for these appropriations. One, to provide employment for the building trade. And two, to eliminate slots. Historian and director of the LaGuardia Archives, Professor Richard K. Lieberman, says there seems little doubt which of these goals was more important? The motives of the New Dealers are clear. They primarily saw housing construction as a way to deal with unemployment. With 70% of the people in the building trade on relief in New York City, this type of program was essential. Helping poor slum dwellers was really secondary. But PWA is still very significant. It meant that the federal government had now taken on a new responsibility to provide decent housing for people who couldn't afford it. As it turned out, the Public Works Administration would make funds available for both public housing and public health. And because of LaGuardia's close relationship with the New Dealers in Washington, Fiorello succeeded in obtaining a large share of this money for New York City while he served as mayor. Between 1934 and 1939, a number of different housing projects went into construction in various parts of the city. Among these were Williamsburg houses in Brooklyn for white tenants, and Harlem River houses in East Harlem for blacks. Historian Peter Marcuse. Very few public housing projects in the United States in the 1930s were racially integrated. At the national level, the policy was essentially a separate but equal housing policy, and that was the policy that predominated in New York City also. Mm, even the mouse ran from my house, they laughed at you. And scorned you too. What did I do then? To be so black and blue. Oh, I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. What is it, my? How will it end? Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue?
Harlem River houses consisted of modern four-story structures built around large open courtyards. The housing project containing almost 600 units included playgrounds, social rooms, a health clinic, and even a nursery school. But there were no doors on the closets and no showers in the bathrooms. These design omissions in a black housing project were symptoms of a problem that lay at the heart of the reform movement which produced a public housing program. The movement was made up of middle-class reformers with the backing of the labor unions. They wanted to help people who needed housing. At the same time, they looked down on the poor. These attitudes were reflected in the type of tenant the reformers were prepared to allow into the projects. Historian Richard K. Lieberman. Public housing during this period was not intended for poor people. At Williamsburg, for example, rents actually went up compared to when the neighborhood was a slum. Now, clearly, many of the former slum dwellers could not afford to live in the new projects. But the projects were not for the poor. They were built for working-class people. Prospective tenants were carefully investigated by the city. Only families could apply. No single persons and no divorced parents with children. Families also had to possess enough income to pay the rents. Otherwise, a project might fail financially, and critics of public housing, those who believed it was another federal giveaway program, could use this as an opportunity to bring it to an end. Today, these practices seem extreme. But in the 1930s, public housing was still a new concept. LaGuardia and the other housing reformers were engaged in an experiment. And like any experiment, there were bound to be mistakes. But the projects went ahead, and due in large part to Fiorello's close relationship with President Roosevelt, almost one-fourth of the nation's public housing units were eventually built in New York City. At the opening of one of these projects, Queensbridge Houses, in 1939, LaGuardia paid tribute to the president. As I've stated so many times before, it's only through the vision and courage of the President of the United States that public housing was finally recognized in our country as a proper function of government. Naturally, we were quick to grasp the opportunity and at the risk of incurring the displeasure of the City Council, I took many trips to Washington. And the result is Williamsburg, Harlem Houses, First Houses, Red Hook, Queensbridge. It takes time and thought and work and effort and patience and ability to first conceive and then design and then construct a unit of this kind. It's not done by speeches. The projects constructed during LaGuardia's administration, though important, would actually provide public housing for only a small percentage of the people who needed it. Nevertheless, Fiorello was the first mayor to begin the overwhelming task of cleaning up the city slums. In the area of public health, Fiorello's accomplishments were even more impressive. 
Dr. Leona Baumgartner is a former director of New York City's Bureau of Child Hygiene. The single thing I remember about LaGuardia that I've always thought was most important was his method of work. The secret of success, as far as I can remember, was that he picked good people and he spent his time picking good people and then he turned them loose. After becoming mayor in 1934, Fiorello removed the Tammany Hall politicians who had been running the city's public health services and replaced them with two outstanding professional appointments, Dr. John Rice as Commissioner of Health and Dr. Sigismund Goldwater as Commissioner of Hospitals. Under Goldwater, New York embarked on an enormous expansion of its public hospital system using funds made available through the Public Works Administration. Each of the city's six boroughs built at least one new hospital, Queens General, Triborough Hospital for Tuberculosis, the Chronic Disease Hospital on Welfare Island, and new facilities in Harlem and Jamaica. Vincent Seyfried was growing up in Queens when Queens General was built. That, of course, uh, was a big plus for the first time in our favor, because it meant if there were any emergencies, you didn't have to travel 12 miles to Long Island City to take uh, care of it. You could go to uh, the Queens General Hospital, which at that time, by the way, was only about a quarter of the present buildings. New York was unique. No other city had such an extensive system of public hospitals serving the poor. When I took office, hospitals were overcrowded. We built several new hospitals. We treat our patients properly. Now, we give them the best of medical care and the best of surgical services. Yes, and I've kicked out the politicians that control each hospital. They're out, right out. Hospitals are now administered by medical boards, entirely under the control of medical men. As mayor, Fiorello remained closely involved with the city's health programs. Although he gave his commissioners a somewhat free hand in running their affairs, LaGuardia liked to keep his finger on the pulse of each department. Goodyear Livingston worked in the city's health department for four years. He says health commissioner John Rice feared LaGuardia. I imagine he talked to every commissioner at least once a week. And uh, they would sit on what was called commissioner's row on the hard benches outside LaGuardia's office. Uh, John, John Rice was a very timid man anything but politically minded and he was terribly afraid of LaGuardia where some people were and um, so that often I'd be sent down there instead of Rice going down personally if it was a business matter. During the 30s the city built 15 new district health centers expanding the program which Commissioner Goldwater had begun years earlier. These centers represented a significant breakthrough in community-based medicine. They consolidated all basic health services in a single location and made them accessible to the poor throughout the city. Dr. Baumgarten describes the atmosphere at these centers. You often had an appointment in a clinic or for an x-ray or for a lab test that could be done there. And so you'd be directed to the laboratory or to the x-ray machine or to where the well baby clinic was or where some other kind of a clinic was going on. There would be a lot of mothers streaming in with babies going to the baby clinic, which was always on the first floor, as I remember. And um, then there were guys coming in for their venereal disease treatments. And uh, there were the people that came in to be followed for tuberculosis. They all had some purpose 
in general and coming there. Dr. Myron Wegman recalls his impression of the city's health department in the LaGuardia era shortly after joining the staff. The uh, ability of the staff who were there to work long hours, to work overtime way and beyond what they were called for, uh, was, uh, I thought, very uh, refreshing, very heartening. I'm not enough of a political scientist or a uh, social critic to say how much uh, Mayor LaGuardia's influence was on that, but everybody that I knew in New York knew that uh, Fiorello stood for something important and a higher level of performance and an, uh, an attitude of selflessness and public interest, which unfortunately is often lacking today. Under LaGuardia, New York's public health system would prove beneficial to the poor and others. But the city's private doctors feared that free medical treatment posed a threat to their practices and by extension, their livelihood. The doctors offered little opposition at first. In fact, many physicians who had lost their practices as a result of the Depression were more than happy to go to work for the health department. Historian John Duffy. In the early 1930s, the economy was so bad that the medical profession was willing to go along with a lot of things that they later objected to. And so in the 1933-34, the health department was able to recruit a number of first-rate clinicians, which they couldn't have done later on or even earlier. But then as their economic situation, by 1937-38, as their economic position improved, uh, then, of course, they, they uh, began to complain about uh, the health department getting free shots. LaGuardia and Health Commissioner Rice were more than a match for their critics. They succeeded in gathering community support for the new public health centers and medical clinics. Meanwhile, LaGuardia and Rice, with the help of the WPA funds, embarked in another important venture, the city's biggest campaign to date in preventive medicine. WPA workers, including doctors, nurses, and technicians, ran mobile x-ray vans to screen people for tuberculosis. They assisted the health department in the effort to immunize school children against diphtheria. And they tested thousands of people for sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis and gonorrhea. Rice and LaGuardia spoke publicly about these diseases, which had been a taboo subject for years. What we are trying to do is to advise men and women who may become infected with syphilis or gonorrhea to be realistic about it and to consult a doctor immediately upon discovery of the symptoms. If one cannot afford a doctor, the city of New York has established clinics throughout the city. Do not be misled by the smart guy on the corner or someone who you know, who will know all about it, tell you to go to some store and buy some preparation. Don't do it. These diseases can be permanently cured. Don't neglect yourselves, throw your lives away, or destroy the lives of others. During his years as mayor, public health remained one of Fiorello's top priorities. The city's health department attracted a first-rate staff, ensuring high-quality service long after Fiorello left office. 
a variety of new programs were implemented that vastly improved the level of public health care. In 1945, LaGuardia vigorously defended the money the city spent on health care. And the health department's job is to prevent people from getting sick. And that costs a lot of money. Uh, we have to observe uh, the trends of contagious disease and the uh, department uh, uh, provides serums and vaccines uh, for immunizations. Uh, it has health centers. You know, we've built a chain of uh, health centers throughout the city since 1934. And we can see the results. Some people will say that we're spending a great deal for uh, uh, our health department, but if uh, there's a great deal of gratification when after midnight on the last day of the year, the uh, health commissioner rings you up and say, Mr. Mayor, I'm ready with my report and I'll have it all tabulated by 12 o'clock tomorrow. And he gives you and shows you the decrease in infant mortality and the decrease in uh, maternity mortality and the low death rate. Uh, that is a great deal of gratification, and that's why some people ask me, well, how can you stand all the abuse that you get around budget time? Well, you see, you become sort of immune to that, and uh, you get so much gratification and satisfaction in seeing results that you don't pay much attention to these people, especially when they're not, they're not informed. Fiorello delivered this speech as he was nearing the end of his last administration. Only a short time earlier, he had proposed a new program a health insurance plan which would help pay the cost of medical treatment for lower-income people earning up to $5,000. Fiorello was not the first public official in America to propose this health management organization, or HMO, type plan, but it was still considered a radical idea and opposed by the city's medical societies. The health insurance plan would not be adapted until sometime after Fiorello's term had ended. But then it, too, would become part of the great legacy which he left the city in public health. Under LaGuardia, New York experienced a huge decrease in communicable disease-related deaths. The mayor built public hospitals, doubled the city's hospital budget, and established a citywide network of district health centers and clinics. Without federal funds, of course, these projects would have been inconceivable. But it was LaGuardia's vision and energy that made them become a reality. Historian David Rossner sums up Fiorello's accomplishments. What LaGuardia did was to say we have to fund public institutions, and we're the only city in the country that did that. We're the only city with 17 hospitals, with a series of health centers that are publicly funded and publicly controlled. Here you have LaGuardia setting up public institutions, saying they should be good, they should be high quality, and then everyone in the city should be entitled to services in them. It was a very profound change, something that over the next 40 years would be part of the baggage, part of the agenda of all future health battles and discussions. Fiorello LaGuardia, the dreamer and the doer, has been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Most of the archival material for this series was provided by the LaGuardia Archives, by the New York City Municipal Archives and Records Center, and by WNYC. The project director is Richard K. Lieberman. The narrator was Tony LoBianco. Project coordinator, Susan Farkas. The scriptwriter, Dick Wirth. Script consultant for this program was Deborah Gardner. The administrator is Edwina Estrella. Actors who appeared in this program are Jim Deanna, Charles Marin, Simon Sorowitz, and Salvatore Vitale. Original theme music is by Mark Lamparello. The mixing engineer, Gary Pink. Associate producer, Susan Vernon. The producer, Tom Vitale.